Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm happy to get to share the Dharma with you again tonight. And in some ways what we're doing on retreat when you're silent and the only voices that you receive are ones uh, speaking about Dharma is you're kind of on a, a detox diet for the mind. So this is one of the reasons why we cut out reading other stuff and <clears throat> engaging in other uh, activities and conversation is like what if we gave ourselves the best chance to understand the Dharma? To cut out all the other signals and radio stations that we tune into. And then for this one month, two months, your only intellectual diet is Dharma. So we use this uh, word a lot, and <clears throat> one of the translations that I like, as I think I've said before, is the truth of the way things are and of nature. And so what we're doing here is actually trying to understand directly through our experience uh, nature. So we hear some things um, intellectually, some framework, some concepts, and then we get the chance to explore this in our own experience. So in the lab of the body and mind. And what we're doing here is really a very unusual and beautiful opportunity to practice what's actually a different way of knowing with awareness. And it's a faculty that most of us haven't had so much opportunity to develop. So we don't learn it in most schools so much. And yet the way that we practice here can inform the rest of our life can inform how we live our life, what we understand to be true. So this dharma as natural law means that we're trying to understand the truth of nature, of where things are, and it's good to remember that we've actually done this before in different ways in our life, of understanding nature. So for most people, uh, <clears throat> you don't remember back to when you were a baby, but you could watch babies and see them learning about the world. And understanding, what does this thing feel like? Like they're touching something, and then a certain stage they're putting a lot of things in their mouth and tasting it. It's like, okay, this thing, it looks like this, and then it tastes like this. And uh, You have to watch them carefully at this time so they don't kill themselves and putting different things in their mouth. So. So in some ways we're doing the same thing. We're trying to pay attention to the mind and its habits and what we're up to and like what stuff we're putting into our mind mouth. <laughs> what things are wholesome and unwholesome. What are, are digestible and indigestible. Right? And usually in life we're not paying attention in this way so we're 
consuming a lot of indigestible things like hatred or jealousy or anxiety, as if this is actually a healthy diet for the mind. So you were really paying attention and tasting it, like, ew, ew. <laughs> That's not something I want to put in my mouth. <laughs> so when you watch babies also, they're learning about uh, the way things are, and one aspect of this you see them learning about is the law of gravity. So babies don't know this when they're born, and as little kids are, get older, you can see them sometimes experimenting with the law of gravity. And they're in their high chair and they might throw something off and watch it fall. And they'll see like, oh yeah, you know, if if I drop something, like, yeah, it seems to fall to the ground. They're not saying this in words, it's usually they're like too small, but then, like, let's see, what if I do it on this side? (laughs) So the same things happens. And what happens if I do and I'm not looking? Like, <laughs> Oh, the same thing happens, right? So then, after a while, you get the idea that, yeah, if I try and put something in midair, like, it's going to fall, right? And you don't even have to know why. You don't have to know, is somebody running that? Or you don't have to know the mathematical formula for that or anything. But in order to live a more harmonious life, you do have to live in accordance with this law. So by now, you know, I know, like, yeah, if I want to place this glass of water, (laughs) it's better to place it on the table. So if I try to place it in midair, I know from the previous experiments uh, that it's going to break, there's going to be splashed water, and splash these people in the front row, and broken glass, and a big mess. And so if by accident sometime... I do something like knock something off the table too. Then it's fallen, and I understand. Like I may have said, like, "Oh, that's oops," but I don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it or fretting about it. You know, I, I've understood that law, and neither do I spend a lot of time taking it personally. You know, like why me? Why now? Is <laughs> unnecessary because you understand. Yeah, this is just part of the way things are. And if you live in harmony with that, there's less messes and less suffering. So similarly, this is what we're experimenting, to know directly in our experience. And we're seeing this over and over again. Now, what is the way that leads to more suffering? What are the rules that govern this world, this reality, and who I am, who I think myself to be? And then you hear these different things about impermanence and anicca, right, or anatta, like some non-solidity of self, like what is that, or dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness, the unreliability of phenomenon. And then you get to see, like, oh, is that true? Let me pay attention in my experience and see, is this true? Are there exceptions to this? And This exploration we're doing is from this different way of knowing with awareness. So the different way of knowing is through direct knowing. So like if I wanted to know if this water is cold or hot, I wouldn't do it by thinking about it and saying like, oh, well, you know, Mark poured this for me about 10 minutes ago and then it was cool. No, I'd know by directly sticking my finger in there and now I know it's cool. 
And once I know that, it's cool, it's wet, no one can tell me otherwise. I know that through my own experience. It's not from reading that in a book. It's not from seeing it on TV or getting some scripture. Yeah, I know that through my own experience, undeniable. So that's the opportunity we have to practice here, and it's such a beautiful one. So the last time I had shared some uh, thoughts on beginning retreat, and I shared the, the acronym of CHAIR with you. And uh, I'm tempted to see if my colleagues remember the acronym and what it stands for, but uh, maybe I won't test them, I'll tell you again. So uh, I was thinking about it because it's actually still applicable. So continuity, and Greg was talking about this uh, also. The continuity is what leads to the development of collectedness of attention. So this means just gently throughout the day, even in the off times, off schedule, just very gently, loyally, staying with being present as best you can. As best you can is all that we're asking. Uh, Humility, so approaching with this attitude of not knowing and being curious. So whenever the story comes up like of, oh, I already know this, or... I've been practicing for this long, or... I know now there's a lot of um, times sort of mindfulness professionals who come to retreats, which is uh, always like a, a, a handicap in practice. If you, <laughs> if you come with an idea that you should already know what you're doing, and there's a pressure, right? So I always recommend to people to hang up your letterman jacket in the closet, you know, <laughs> as best you can, let it go, and, and just enter the practice like you did the first time. So as uh, Jesus says in the book of Matthew, truly I tell you, unless you become like little child, like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So allow yourself to just be curious like a child, see things fresh in this way. It's much more fun than thinking you know everything. (laughs) So arrival, uh, investigation, and then renunciation. So renunciation is related to the one that I want to share with you um, tonight. So I have another another acronym for you. This one I think is not going to catch on quite as much as chair will, uh, because it's (laughs) EWIP. So... EWIP is actually uh, one of these that's, it's like the first letter of a sentence. Um, and the sentence is, uh, eat what's on your plate. Okay. So uh, what this means is, uh, you know, that it's, it's actually kind of built into the monastic system, this eat what's on your plate thing. So as you know, like the monks and nuns in this tradition are renunciates, so they don't have money and they don't go out to buy food or something. So basically the only thing that they eat is what's offered to them every day. And in some ways here on retreat, you don't get a choice of what's for lunch, but you have a little bit of choice by spooning things on or avoiding different dishes or something like that. But when you're living in a monastery, uh, when you're ordained or practicing in a monastery, uh, you get what's put in your bowl. 
So I lived in um, in Sri Lanka in this monastery for um, a year or so when I was in uh, early stages of my practice. And uh, it was a pretty uh, rigorous meditation monastery. So the wake-up bell was at 3.30, and then got a little porridge type thing, and then start practicing at 4, and then have a little small amount of breakfast about six and then uh, we get the main meal of the day the one meal before noon at about uh, 11 11 30 something like that and in some uh, places the monastics would go out for the pindapat the walk but here in this meditation monastery we would stay with the bowls and people would come uh, from different villages and offer us food every day it was very beautiful to remember that we live in dependence on these people offering us this sustenance that day. You know, people would come from uh, places where they would clearly not be that well off. You know, very poor people offering like the best they could because they had such respect for the practice and for the Dharma. So you'd sit there with the bowl and people would come by and serve you. And your job was to be as equanimous as possible. (laughs) And it's interesting to notice this, you know, tendency to slightly tip the bowl you know, forward or back, if you like, like something a little bit more, or and and the people sometimes would try to get an indication if they should put another spoon or not. Yeah, <laughs> but like you're supposed to be just like down class, just taking what's offered like that. You know. <clears throat> so it was interesting practice to notice the arising of preferences. You know, the arising of preferences, and it's not that they wouldn't come, but training to see them, and then training to be as steady as possible with them. So you get to do this here too, and it's such a, a, a tempting trap to fall into to think that uh, what we're trying to do here is create as pleasant an experience as possible. And you can see the monkey mind just like machinating all the time to make that happen. Right? So in the way we judge our meditation experience, what we consider good or bad practice, the good practice is usually the pleasant one where it's very concentrated, or there's calm. We consider a bad practice where the mind is very noisy, where there's a lot of suffering or pain. And actually, it's not even true. You know, we don't know. It's very easy to project what other people are experiencing, and then to be thinking, like, oh, I want what's on his plate. Like, I don't want what's on my plate. Like, I got body pain or boredom or reliving the past. and I want what that guy's having. A resistance to what has been served to you in the Dharma and your mind-body experience. And fortunately, my experience of practice in working with people is you can spend a lot of time resisting or trying not to look at, but <clears throat> that doesn't actually make a change into that other person's experience. So you basically have to eat what's on your plate. <laughs> and we often go through many rounds of machinations trying to make it different. And <laughs> You can just observe that, but then finally, basically when you're flat out with your face in the plate, you're like, okay, maybe I'll eat this. And then, <laughs> and then there's something to learn there. There's something to learn from everything.
So also it's, it's good to keep in mind the perspective that the <clears throat> spiritual life is very vast. You know, we hear ideas of what's being developed, or maybe we hear about like this framework for this path, or what's supposed to happen next or something. But we really don't know, <laughs> you know. We really don't know, and it's good to keep this in mind. At different times, different qualities of the heart and mind are developing. So yeah, sure, during some periods, concentration is developing, or calm is developing, and that's usually what we call like good meditation. During other times, we're opening to the Four Noble Truths, we're opening to suffering, to unsatisfactoriness. We're developing equanimity, we're developing balance of mind. And guess when you develop more balance of mind? When things are tough, right? When there's difficult experiences of the body and the mind. And so many more things, so many different more qualities of the mind and heart are being developed. We're like little ants on this giant map, you know, trying to think we have it all figured out. So also you can notice the ways in which you think uh, that the ideal is to create uh, pleasant experiences and um, it's easy to get annoyed by the Dharma teachers also when it seems like we're not in line with that uh, strategy for your life. (laughs) But it's really not our job to do that. So the monkey mind may be saying like, oh, I need to do this, and I need to do that, and you know. It's like, oh, how come I can't do that here? I don't like that, it doesn't make sense. Right? So uh, one of my favorite stories about this from uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who gave the talk that you heard on the tape on uh, Saturday night. <clears throat> and I hope I'm not scooping his story yet, but I, th- I don't think we're playing this one. So. He talks about how in this in this monastery, which Ajahn Chah, they would go on this uh, pindapat, the the round to get the food, the one meal of the day. And he would say that as a young monk, he was really psyched about that, right? You know, and sometimes people would put different things like that he'd like in there, like some sweets, and then there'd be rice, and then there'd be maybe something he didn't like or didn't know what it was, and and then he'd be so psyched with his, his meal, but then Ajahn Chah would be like, okay, then everyone has to dump their meal into this giant vat. <laughs> and they got back to the monastery. And then he would stir it all up <laughs> and then have it re-slopped out to them. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, now it's lunchtime. <laughs> and he said like his mind would rail against this, like, are you kidding? What are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And... Um, is it particularly because Ajahn Chah himself would not eat the slopped meal too, right? <laughs> and he's like, you know, it seemed like he almost took joy in like observing us eating this, but he was like, you know, it actually really did cut through the greed that he had for food, or it highlighted the preference that we had. You know, and the monastics before they eat take a, a do a chant, like a little a vow, like I take this food not for fattening, not for pleasure not for beautification, um, but for the continuation of this body and mind for the holy life, 
for the realization of liberation. So when it's all gunked up together, you know, that doesn't uh, make you want to eat more than you need for that. So it really undercuts greed and preferences in some way. So So we're not going to do that to you here, but if you want to, you you can play with that, right? So eat what's on your plate. And then you'll get something different after that. So practicing this different way of knowing and uh, we're learning to be aware with all of our senses in ways that usually we might not be. So this is actually the the topic that I like to talk about in the Satipatthana is to move into uh, the fourth foundation, the fourth establishment of mindfulness. So we started with the body as the first one. And then the second one was Vedana, this feeling tone, a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, which can certainly be noticed in the body, but also can be noticed in all of the other senses too. Then the third foundation is about awareness of the mind and mind states. And if you're looking for a progression, it could be that this is a paying attention to the body, then noticing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then noticing the mind states that can arise in relationship to this too. And noticing the existence of wholesome states, unwholesome states, the absence of certain states, and the presence of certain states. So now this fourth foundation is a really different kind of thing. <clears throat> and it's, his name is the Dhammas. But in this way, the Dhamma means something different. It's really about some frameworks for understanding. So in this uh, category of this fourth foundation are included the Four Noble Truths, the Five Aggregates, Uh, the six sense spheres, the five hindrances, and the seven awakening factors. So a lot of stuff in there. Some of them are about specific mental qualities. Some of them we've talked about a little already, like the hindrances. And then some of them are more these uh, kind of frameworks or lenses that we can use to pick apart the way that we usually see experience. So particular uh, structures or points of reference that can help us to see the truth of the way things are, help us to see the Dhamma. And I think it's helpful to gain some facility with each of these uh, if you're interested in, in Dhamma practice. And in the beginning, it can feel a bit artificial or like a little effort to attend in this way. But then once you start to get it, it can become kind of some of the lenses that you have. And they can be used at different times when appropriate. So the one I'd like to take up tonight is one about the six sense spheres, six sense doors. And it's a particularly interesting one. It highlights the way in which the Buddha's framework, the Buddha's understanding about human life or what our life is, 
is different than what we might have learned in school. So first off, in the school, in kindergarten, you probably learned about five sense doors, right? So seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing. But here, interestingly, the mind is included as the sixth sense door and treated equally. So what we call our life is this rapid succession of moments of experience arising where consciousness meets experience through the sense door. So there's consciousness and with the working eye sense door and a sight we have this experience of seeing. Consciousness and a working ear sense door and a sound is the experience of hearing. Consciousness experience of through the nose sense door of a scent, the experience of smelling. Consciousness through the tongue, mouth, with a taste, sense of tasting. Through the body is sensing, and then equally is considered the mind and mind objects. So thoughts, memories, what we call the future, existing as only mind objects in the present. So in some ways our mindfulness practice can be to uh, try to know what's happening in each of these sense stores with clarity. So developing some clarity about what's happening in each of these areas. And then exploring more the interaction between them. So how they condition each other, and particularly how they might interact with the mind when there's a sense experience through the others. You can notice how this seems to happen through the different sense doors just uh, selflessly too. So I remember one of my teachers saying, it's kind of like a, as if uh, consciousness is this like a spider in the middle of a web with six different sections. And then some sense experience happens in one area and it runs over and gobbles that up and runs back to the middle. Right? And then runs over and gobbles up another one, gobbles up another one. It's happening so fast that it appears solid. We don't see the individual frames in the film. So it seems like there's a solid me, it seems like there's a room, it seems like there's a foot, all this stuff. But really all of that is dependent on concept. So this area of the senses is, is really interesting to me in both uh, kind of a relative way and then in this, this dhammic way. So I studied some um, anthropology in, in uh, school and some of my friends have gone on to become uh, professors. And this one field of study now is about the history of the senses. 
So it's about uh, understanding how in different um, historical periods or actually different cultures, people relate to these different sense experiences differently. So we assume that the way we experience the world is the truth. And uh, for example, there's an expression, seeing is believing. And we privilege the sight sense door as being accurate and true. So apparently the, the full uh, statement of this in medieval times was seeing is believing, but feeling is the truth. So there was a more sense that, oh, feeling it is when you really know something. You know. And then uh, one friend of mine had done some studies in, about colonial America, and he wrote a book called How Early America Sounded. So this book is about uh, how information was more often derived from and power was attributed to the sense of sound during that time, not sight. So now I'm sure our use of, of technological devices is also changing our experiences in the way that we deal with the senses, and uh, sometimes for the better. So I have a cousin who is uh, deaf, and now that a lot of stuff is done visually through email and texting, he's at much less of a disadvantage in professional life. Uh, than he was before. And he's actually a professor of mathematics, and uh, he's doing really well. And uh, this, this change that's happened over the course of our, our lifetime has impacted him, too. So the way that we even relate to our senses is highly conditioned. The information we take in is conditioned, and how we label it is conditioned. So I mentioned that I was uh, teaching in um, Brazil just before coming here in February. So I was invited to teach a nine-day retreat there. And uh, the people there primarily speak Brazilian Portuguese. So I tried to learn a little bit before I went, but I definitely didn't learn enough to actually teach in the language. So they had some translators for me. But I kind of learned enough to to slightly track what was happening, and I knew Spanish and French a little bit, so I could follow along a little bit. <coughs> but I did need the translator a lot. So when I was having um, the individual meetings like we have here, um, basically the person would tell me something. They'd come in and they'd tell me their experience in um, Portuguese. Uh, and... Sometimes I could kind of tell what they were saying, um, but a lot of times not. But sometimes uh, I, I could really feel what they were saying, you know, like emotionally or energetically. And uh, it was very interesting. I felt like sort of like an like intelligent dog. Uh, so, you know, dogs, they say, understand a few words like walk or <laughs> bone or, you know, something like that. But But they get the tone of what you're saying. You know, so if you say, like, like good dog, they like that, but if you yell at them. And so I could definitely tell the energetic sense of what people were saying, and um, sometimes I'd be reacting in this way like that seemed appropriate, and the translator would be like, oh, did you understand that? And I'd be like, no, not at all. Like, <laughs> I actually have no idea what they, they actually said, <laughs> word-wise, so I can't respond, but I get what they said like 
energy-wise or emotional-wise, you know. They're like, oh, it really looked like you knew what they were saying. It's like, well, in a certain way I did, but in another way, conceptually, like, I really have no idea, so please tell me, right? <laughs> so it's like these different senses, these different ways of knowing, you know, that we can, can tune into. And the more that we develop that, and then I can also see uh, which sense is activated now, what's actually going on particularly because we live so much of our time in the area of the mind. And we believe our thoughts. We believe our misperceptions. So this is where they, in the, the teachings they talk about this uh, fetters arising in conjunction with this. Like in some ways it's a very simple process, this consciousness sense door an impulse sense experience, but there's like an overlay on top of that that we have. An overlay of an idea of a me who's experiencing it. And we don't have to get rid of that. It's actually a very thin overlay. It's just a very light conceptual thing that when we grab onto becomes very solid. We just need to see through that and observe that. You get to understand how this process works of the concoction of the world, the creation of the world. So my favorite story of this is the story of someone who goes into a cave and paints a painting, a picture of a tiger, and then looks at it and goes, ah, tiger, and runs away screaming. So it's a funny story, um, but observe how often as you're sitting here, doing nothing, just breathing on the cushion, you're doing the same thing, right? So the mind is painting some picture. And actually, would that it was a still, solid picture, but it's actually like a whole major motion picture. It's completely fabricated. And then we live in that world for some time until we wake up. We live and we suffer in that world in the same way that person who was afraid of the tiger ran away. So we do this projections of on people here, you know, on different other meditators, like this person's like this, or I don't like them, or this person's like this, and I love them, and I'm going to marry them, and you know, you know the full. I know you you all are, are familiar with the vipassana vendetta, vipassana romance uh, dichotomy, right? The one that you have projected is the one your true love who you've never actually spoken to and you know absolutely nothing about, right? You've concocted this entire life you have together. And then this other whole world of someone who has been in the wrong walking path or you know, took the banana you wanted or something and then becomes your enemy, right? So observe the mind concocting this story. You know, observe the way in which we create these worlds, these paintings, and then we suffer. We suffer in them or else we worship at them. We worship at this imaginary shrine. We spend so much time with so much energy and they're just like bubbles. So you can play with knowing things just as they are with the sense doors. You know, can I know what's happening? Like, okay, this is sound, hearing. 
there's a sound that's unpleasant. And the mind is attributing something to it. Like, oh, this person shouldn't be doing that, they shouldn't be doing this. It's terrible they're doing that, people should tell them to stop doing that. You know, on and on, right? Boom, the whole world gets created of suffering. Yeah, it's very interesting to observe and very poignant to see how often we live in these worlds and suffer in these worlds and how quickly they can arise and pass away. It's very humbling, actually. It's very humbling to see the mind and the unawakened mind and its antics and how much this is dragging us around all the time. So feel that, you know, feel feel the, the dukkha of that. So this is a way in which we're not understanding the way things are. You know, we're living in these imagined worlds. We're trying to place glasses of water in midair, you know, like it's going to work and it doesn't work. So then we suffer, others suffer. It's not aligned with the truth of how things are. So the Buddha gave one of his um, shortest teachings about this. And uh, this is the teaching that he gave to someone in Bahia. So now I know many of you have heard this story before, but notice, as I've said that, if there's a part of you that sort of tunes out, like, oh, I know the Bahia story. So one of the things about the, the retreat is that we get it to, to practice and still the mind, and there can be actually an opportunity for allowing the Dharma to sink in deeper. And if you really got the Bahia story, you would be an arahant. You would be completely free of any trace of greed, hatred, and delusion in your mind stream. So if that's true for you, you can chill and don't listen. But <laughs> if not, just be interested. And yeah, is there something new I can learn from this? So backstory in Bahia. Uh, so once there was a sailor, and the sailor was shipwrecked. And he came to on the beach. He was wearing nothing. So he, he had lost his companions, his boat, everything. So he took what he could from around this bark, and he wrapped himself a little loincloth of bark and started walking towards the town somewhere. Uh, find food and find out what's happening. And um, as he was walking, people started to think that he was a holy man. Yeah that he's a great renunciate. He's renounced not only all worldly possessions, but even clothes. Like, this guy's deep, you know? So then people started to treat him like a holy man, and, uh, you know, they offered him food and stuff. At this time in India, there was this tradition, like if you're a, a mendicant, a spiritual aspirant, people give you food and, you know, support you in your practice. So he started, you know, took up residence in this... Uh, woods, forest, and <clears throat> he started to get the stuff that aspirants, spiritual aspirants got, and he was living alone in seclusion, and he actually was doing some kind of spiritual practice, but then at a certain point, he, he, he had this thought occur to him, like, you know, everyone thinks I'm a fully awakened being, everyone thinks I'm an arhant, but um, I wonder if I really am. Yeah. It's good when these questions come to you, like, listen when these questions come to you. <laughs> So fortunately for Bahia, he was actually a sincere guy, so he really asked this question sincerely, like, I wonder if I'm really uh, awakened, or if I just think I am. Yeah. So a moment of doubt, and apparently, uh, according to this story, 
a, a deva shows up to him and who had been a relative of him his in a past life who cares about his welfare and who tells him the hard truth. Uh, so the relative brings the straight talk express that uh, you, Bahia, are neither an arahant nor have you even entered the path of arahantship. You don't have even the practice whereby you would become an arahant. So he's basically like, you don't know what you're talking about and nor are you even in the neighborhood of this. <laughs> so that's, that's a pretty big blow, right? If you had previously been thinking you were fully awakened. <laughs> but also to Bahia's uh, credit, he recovers from this immediately. He doesn't seem to spend a lot of time fretting about this or trying to like make himself look good. His next question is, well, who in the world does know this? Like, are there actually arhats? And is there someone who does know this path? It's, a, it's good. It's a quick recovery for Bahia. It's a good one. And then the deva says, uh, you know, there's a city in the north called Savati, and there is an arhant. There's the blessed one who is an arhant, a, a awakened one, the Buddha. And he teaches the Dhamma. He teaches the path that's leading to awakening. So also to Bahia's credit, he immediately sets forth to find this Buddha. Like he, he does have this urgency. So he immediately starts walking, and he walks all night, and then he comes to Savati. And there's a lot of monks out there doing walking meditation in the open air. And so he asks one of them, um, Venerable Sirs, uh, is this where the Buddha is staying? And they say, yes, but he's gone into town for the alms round, so he's gone to get food. So Bahia hurries up and he, he leaves the Jetta's Grove and he enters the town and he sees the Buddha there, very serene and inspiring confidence in him. So he goes over to him and he says, um, please teach me the Dhamma, O Blessed One, teach me the Dhamma that will be for my own long-term wellness, welfare and bliss. And unusually, the Buddha says to him, um, this isn't the time, Bahia. I've already entered the town for the alms round. So he's saying, like, oh, this isn't the right time and place for this. And Bayes says, please, sir, it's hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for you or for me. We don't know how long we'll live, basically. Please teach me the Dhamma, blessed one, or one well gone that will be for my own long-term welfare and bliss. So that's, that's pretty good. He realizes, like, yeah, life is short and uncertain. We don't know, you know, how long we have or... What's going to happen? So please teach me. And the Buddha says again to him, this is not the time. But then the third time he asks, the Buddha actually agrees. And it seems like in the suttas a lot, if you ask the Buddha something three times, he's willing to uh, answer. So here's, you can imagine the Buddha's here with his alms bowl. You know, he's like on his way to the alms round. So he's giving him the pithiest teaching possible. So says, thus by yeah, you should train yourself. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That's how you should train yourself. When for you, there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard only the sensed in reference to the sensed, and only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. 
When there's no you in connection with that, there's no you there. When there's no you there, you are neither here, nor yonder, nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of dukkha, the end of suffering. So on hearing this brief explanation of the Dhamma by the Buddha, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth right then and there was released from the cankers and effluence, and he was awakened. And the postscript on the story is that as Bahia was leaving, he was actually killed uh, by a cow. And so then uh, the... Uh, Monks later asked, like, oh, what happened to him? And the Buddha said, you know, uh, yeah, he had this this urgency, and it was good, because uh, he actually was awakened, and then he died. He became fully awakened from upon hearing that. So it's good to remember, it's so simple. It's basically just like, don't add stuff on. (laughs) Just let things be as they are. We don't have to create something new. It's just like, oh, let go of the concoction or see through the concoction that we're doing of this overlay of an idea of me, an idea of permanent, abiding, independent and controlling self. And that's the end of suffering, just seeing things as they are. So being completely aligned with the truth of the way things are. So this, this for me is one definition of this awakening or uh, enlightenment, you could say, is this alignment with the truth the way things are, not a misalignment. We come into full alignment and allow things to just be the way that they are. So he basically has gone through the sense doors in this teaching, the Buddha. So seeing, just seeing, hearing, just hearing, Sensing, including smell, taste, and the physical body, just sensing and then cognizing in the field of thinking, just let it be what it is. And that's it. There's no you in connection with that, there's no you between it, there's no you here, there, or in between. Sometimes at the end of these um, suttas, they have an exclamation the Buddha made. So I'll share this one with you too. Where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars don't shine, the sun isn't visible. There the moon doesn't appear. There darkness is not found. And when a sage, a Brahmin through sagacity, through their wisdom, has realized this for himself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, they are freed.
So we can practice with this. This is one of the frameworks that the Buddha suggests that we attend to. Just keeping things simple. Knowing experience at the sense doors just for what it is. And noticing the proliferation of mind. The add-ons that get put on there that create a sense of self, that create tension, that create suffering. So like with everything that uh, we share here in the hall, this is for you, offering for you. So in some ways, uh, what gets offered in the Dharma hall and the Dharma talks is kind of like something gets put in the bowl. (laughs) And uh, you can eat it, what is digestible to you. You can play with it, experiment with it in your experience, in your practice. You can doubt it, certainly. And if you doubt it, check it out through your experience. You know, check out it with, if this seems to be true from your human life. So the last reflection I'll share with you is about um, staying close to your experience, staying close to home. So sometimes you hear some things, and maybe even some words I use today, you're like, oh, I don't know what that means, like arhant, enlightenment, awakening. Like, I don't relate to that stuff. That's not what I'm here. Jhana, whatever, you know. And that's actually totally fine. So you don't have to think about that stuff. You don't have to want to be that stuff. You don't have to know what that stuff means at all. So I think it's really good to stay close to what your own sincere interest and intention is in practice. You're like, what what has drawn you to be here on retreat? What's your motivation? What is it that's called you to this noble and unusual pursuit of being here with our Dharma friends, practicing for a month, for two months? So trust your own good intention. Stay close to what is really sincerely your own aspiration, what's meaningful to you. Let everything else take care of itself. So for some people there, it helps to um, consider some way of letting go into this. And I've said, you know, it's this spiritual path is vast and we don't know where we are but then you might be like well who does someone should you know like what can i what can i trust who can who can support me in this and if it it works for you this is where you know taking refuge can be helpful you're taking refuge in the dhamma itself in the truth of the way things are Or if, if it, you relate to this, you can take refuge in the Buddha, in your understanding of the possibility of awakening, or if you relate to the Buddha as a teacher, also taking refuge in that way. And taking refuge in this tradition of embodied beings who know this Dhamma, who have actually aligned, 
and this continuation of a living lineage of this possibility. So there is this that we can rest in, that we can let go into, that we can trust. And if it helps you to rest in that or anything else, any other way it works for you to not feel like it's me alone in this, you know, trust, trust the path, trust the truth. We're all in this uh, kind of cooker, cooker of Dharma here, getting cooked in different ways. So if this framework is helpful for you, you could play with it a little bit. And if it's not, also you can let it go if it seems complicated or cryptic. It's possible to rest with just, okay, not knowing. May or may not be helpful, right? But if you're curious about it, take this as an exploration. So we continue our practice together, this different way of knowing. So as you sit here, you can recognize what it feels like in the body, whatever that is, sensing. Just let it be what it is. We'd recognize if there's something in the mind, in the heart. If you can just know that for what it is. Thought, mind state, mood. If your eyes are open, you could recognize that you're seeing. Just that. And then hearing, just allowing the sounds to be exactly as they are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.